0: Good morning, everyone. We're right at 1015, so I'll get us started, but I imagine folks will wander in um, as we begin. Let's start with prayer. Always a good place to begin. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, our mother, we pray to you this morning and ask for your presence and care among us. Guide us in worship of you, in learning about you, and building relationship with you and your people. Help us to see you more expansively in our worship and in our lives. All of this, we pray, will equip us to be your children, sharing your love in the world. In your holy name we pray. Amen. This morning, we will talk all about the women's lectionary, what it is, how we're engaging it, um, and hopefully we'll have time for some questions at the end. But as I go through, please interrupt me. If I'm saying something that is unfamiliar or confusing, uh, raise your hand or come to the microphone in the middle uh, and ask questions at any point. I welcome interruptions and, in fact, encourage them. just putting that out there before we begin. I'll give us a bit of a roadmap for where we're headed this morning. First, I'll start by talking about the Revised Common Lectionary, which is what we use typically, as well as a note about biblical translation. Then I'll talk about the Women's Lectionary and Reverend Dr. Will Gaffney um, and her work. And then we'll say a little bit about how St. Columba's will engage this work. First, let's start with the Revised Common Lectionary. As I named, this is what is sort of normative in the Episcopal Church and in many other denominations. Many Protestant denominations follow the Revised Common Lectionary. The Revised Common Lectionary was created by the Consultation on Common Texts, that's a good tongue twister, uh, in 1992. So the consultation involved representatives from numerous uh, Protestant uh, denominations coming together to create this lectionary that is based in large part on the Roman Catholic lectionary, uh, but with some edits, some additions, to help us to get a good sampling of the biblical text in worship. So the Revised Common Lectionary features um, a text from the Hebrew scriptures an epistle, a gospel and a psalm for each Sunday and works in a three year cycle. So we have Year A, B and C. Um, if you want to follow along, we're in year B right now. Uh, But it helps us to go through a lot of scripture. We hear a lot of scripture as Episcopalians um, and in other Protestant denominations that use the revised common lectionary because of this cycle. Each of the years um, attaches itself to one of the gospels and then of Matthew, Mark and Luke and John is sprinkled throughout because John says a lot of things that are not duplicated elsewhere. So that helps us to read almost all of the Psalms. We get a fair amount of the Hebrew scriptures as well um, and hear a lot of Paul's letters um, or letters that might be attributed to Paul. Just because I think it's interesting and perhaps you will too, lectionaries have been used in the church since the fourth century. Uh, I hadn't realized that until I started preparing for this presentation today. Lectionaries are really old devices. They didn't look quite how they do today. Now you can go to lectionary.net and see the whole thing very easily. That wasn't the case in the fourth century, of course, but they did start having um, charts of scripture, when to read them. Mostly it was based on feast days, uh, not just regular Sundays, but a lectionary in some form has been existence in the, in the church since the fourth century. So we're following along with a really ancient practice in this. It's estimated that around 60% of American Christians use a lectionary. So that includes Roman Catholic Church, that includes the Episcopal Church, many other Protestant denominations uh, use the lectionary, which is why our lectionaries are so important. The Revised Common Lectionary does a pretty good job, and there are still things that are missing, which helps us start to see why a project like Dr. Gaffney's is important. Things are missing um, from these lectionaries and certainly the other 40% of Christians in the United States are missing things too. Um, Often a church that isn't following a lectionary uh, might do more sermon series that focus on particular books Um, there may be it's it's up to the pastor to decide what gets read so there may be big gaps or there may be fewer gaps depending on that pastor's inclination so the lectionary helps us to share a common text um, and it means that a lot of churches are using the same thing each sunday so this is i'm part of an ecumenical marriage my wife is a presbyterian and when we do preach on the same sundays which is rare, but when we do, we can look at the same text most of the time because the Presbyterian Church also uses the lectionary. Uh, It means that if you are friends with folks who go to a different church who uses the lectionary, you can talk about the same scripture over brunch. So shared um, resource, something that helps us to get a lot of the text. Um, I find it really helpful that we share that with a lot of denominations. It also means that none of our clergy have to sit and think okay what are those the texts that I'm gonna pick each and every Sunday of the year Uh, so helpful helpful resource for those 60% of us a word about biblical translation every translation is an interpretation unless you are reading directly from Greek or Hebrew and reading a clean manuscript that has not been edited for the sake of reproduction, which I imagine you're not, um, you're receiving an interpretation. Even if you are reading in Greek or Hebrew directly, uh, if you're reading something that you were able to buy off a shelf, someone has tried, has had to edit from numerous manuscripts to make it into something that is readable, makes sense, is easily duplicated. Um, But most of us are not reading the Greek and Hebrew. So we are certainly receiving an interpretation. translators sit down with the text and try to offer us something that we can read in our own language, they have to make choices. There's not one-to-one translations for most of scripture. Most Greek and Hebrew Hebrew words have multiple options of things that they could be in English or Spanish or French or whatever language it is that you are reading the text. So translators have to make choices. They have to make choices based on how a sentence is formed, how readable it is in the context of worship or devotion. They have to make choices um, between how accurate they want it to be and how readable they want it to be. So you can see this um, in translations that work really hard to put Uh, scripture into words that we would use day in, day out. Uh, And sometimes those are not the most accurate translations, but translations that uh, lean further towards accuracy may be harder to understand. So translators are weighing out a lot of different uh, pieces when trying to offer us something that we can read and enjoy. So they pick what would be the best fit, which is, of course, a vague qualification uh, as they're translating, which means that their interpretation of scripture, uh, their understanding of what a passage might mean, ends up included in the way that they translate. So that's something for us to be aware of with each translation that we read, that there's no perfect translation. Uh, There are some that biblical scholars are more inclined to and less inclined to. um, And you can take that or leave that um, as is your choice, but something for us to be aware of. Normally on a Sunday, we use the new revised standard version for most of our texts and we use the St. Helena Psalter for our Psalm texts. Uh, That Psalter, as it sounds, comes out of the St. Helena community um, and it pays attention to gendered language in the Psalms um, and takes out a lot of the Lord language, translates that differently. Uh, So that's, that's what we use here for our Psalms, just in case you want to know. So as I named, our lectionary that we follow has limits. It's a wonderful resource, and there's still things that are missing. Uh, And translation, also wonderful because I don't know Greek and Hebrew, and probably most of us in this room do not. Um, But there's limits to that translation as well. So Reverend Dr. Will Gaffney steps um, in, sees these gaps, uh, and wants to offer a way for us to explore scripture a little more fully. I'll say a bit about Will Gaffney before we get into um, the Womanist Lectionary itself. But first, I'd like to pause for questions on what I've said so far um, about the Revised Common Lectionary, about translation. Um, Anything that's coming up for you? Yeah, would you mind coming to the microphone so folks can hear? I was curious. You mentioned the last time it was updated it was 1992. Mm-hmm. Do you know like, how long it had been prior to that, like the previous update? I don't know. That's a great question. I don't, I don't know when the lectionary was updated prior to that. I could find out. We could find out. Yeah, good question. Very simple question, is
1: the revised common lectionary related to the new
0: revised standard version? It's not, you could follow the revised common lectionary in any translation. Mm -hmm. Many of the churches that use the revised common lectionary happen to also use uh, the NRSV, but it's not a requirement. Uh,
2: this is not a question as much as a request. We don't get a lot of the Hebrew scriptures because we only get one reading, and I'd really like it if we got all of the readings.
3: I don't know either when the, um, what the last version was, but we do know that the, um, when we went to the new, the new prayer book in 1979, yes. that's when we started a three-year lectionary. That's a 28-year prayer book, 1928 prayer book only had every single year you read the same cycle of readings and so that was way less scripture and I think really boring and hard for preachers. So three years is good.
0: Great, thanks for that, Susan. I did not know that. I appreciate it. A few words on Reverend Dr. Will Gaffney. Um, She is a womanist biblical scholar and in a moment I'll talk more about what it means to be a womanist. Um, I imagine that's a new term for many of us. She is a professor of Hebrew Bible at Bright Divinity School. I pulled a couple of names of the classes that she teaches because I I find it fascinating to look at those sorts of things. Uh, So two that I found interesting are The Bible in the Public Square, The Bible and Black Lives Matter. The second is Woman's Story of the Bible. Uh, So those are two courses that we could take from her if we were students at Bright Divinity School. On occasion, she offers uh, these classes online. So if you want to keep an eye out, if these are of interest, um, auditing is open to all. Um, So something just for us to keep an eye out for. She's an author of numerous books, um, and I have them, I have several here with me this morning that I can pass around. Uh, Womanist Midrash is a reintroduction to women of the Torah, and it goes through book by book um, of the Torah and talks about women that are named or unnamed in each of those books, and it offers a little more information about their stories. Uh, So a really great resource. This is It's pretty academic, but if you want to read through it slowly, I think it's a great resource for devotional. uh, If you want to explore some of those women of the Bible that often we don't know about. Uh, Daughters of Miriam is all about women prophets. When I spoke about biblical prophets a few weeks ago, this is a resource that I looked to for some explanation about prophets, about how we seek them out in scripture and how we look for those prophets who might not be named as such because they are women, but who are certainly fulfilling the roles of a prophet. So another interesting one. And then I have three of her lectionary books as well. So I'll, I'll pass those around if people want to flip through as we continue. She's also an Episcopal priest and she's a brilliant teacher and preacher. Her website is womenists wait, womanists waiting in the word. And I commend this website to you. Many of her sermons, lectures, uh, blog posts are recorded there. So if you want to hear some of her preaching, which I highly recommend, it's easy to find through her website, Uh, as well as up-to-date commentary on some of the things that the church is doing. So a word about what it means to be a womanist, and I'll first acknowledge my limitations uh, in discussing this. I'm a white woman and therefore will never, have never had the lived experience of a black woman. Uh, So I'm speaking of womanist theology and womanist understanding of the world uh, as a student of these people, um, not as as someone who um, can claim that experience. I want to name my limitation first off. Womanism um, and womanist theology, which is where we'll focus our energy, is based on that lived reality of black women. It's a response to the feminist movement, uh, which largely excluded the issue of race um, and did not do a very good job in early iterations of including black women and women of color. So black women said, we need a movement that includes um, the fact that we are women, that includes uh, people of color, and recognizes the intersectionality of, of those different identities and the way that it affects the way someone moves about in the world. I have a few folks up here um, in case you're wanting to learn more about womanism and womanist theology. Alice Walker is sort of the mother of womanism. She first coined the term um, and wrote extensively about it in the search of our mother's garden, womanist prose. And then the other three uh, women I have up here are theologians, preachers, teachers. Reverend Dr. Katie Geneva Cannon wrote *Black Womanist Ethics*. Her focus was on womanism and uh, Christian ethics. She lived from 1950 to 2018, uh, and in 1974, she was the first Black American uh, ordained in the United Pre- Black American woman ordained in the United Presbyterian Church. Uh, Dr. Dolores Williams wrote Sisters in the Wilderness, The Challenge of Womanist God Talk, and she lived from 1937 to 2022 and was a professor at Union Theology for many years. Bishop Dr. Yvette Flunder is the presiding bishop and founder of the Fellowship of Affirming Ministries known as TFAM, which is an A multi-denominational fellowship of primarily black Christians uh, that seeks radical inclusivity um, and in that uh, focuses on social ministry without prejudice and discrimination. Angela happens to know a fair amount about TFAM if you are curious to learn more. So let's turn to the lectionary itself. Again, those are floating around the room uh, if you want to be able to take a peek. Much like the Revised Common Lectionary, uh, the uh, women's lectionary follows a three-year cycle and or is offered in a one-year Year year W. Um, So that was the first book of this project was Year W, which could be used at any point in the church calendar or picked up by a church that does not normally follow a lectionary. Uh, So it's a standalone. It includes readings from all of the Gospels as well as Hebrew scripture, Psalms, um, and other readings from the Christian Testament. Uh, But years A, B, and C sort of mirror the pattern of the Revised Common Lectionary, but offering uh, different readings from those Gospels, different pairings where it felt fitting, um, and different translation. So some of the really impressive work that I think Dr. Gaffney did in compiling this lectionary was first, she built uh, a female canon of scripture. And she did this with Bible software that allows you to search and compile uh, long lists of texts that include different keywords. Um, And she, of course, being a scholar of the Bible, knows lots of Hebrew and Greek and could do that really um, meticulously. So she built this um, together, knowing that biblical literacy requires that we also know the women of the Bible, not just men of the Bible. To know our Bible well means that we need to hear those stories of people on the margins. So she compiled uh, this canon and then went through with each of the gospel texts across the three years and started doing matching um, thematically um, or based on the season, um, matching up seasonal themes. Uh, So she did a lot of work trying to pair that up. to me, it's sort of mind boggling to think about uh, taking the whole of the Bible and trying to map it out into a three year lectionary. Um, and she did this work um, with companions, but mostly um, on her own. Uh, so, really impressive. And then, after putting all of that together, she also translated all of it um, on her own, which is incredibly impressive. Um, You'll notice when you hear the Psalms, in particular, in worship, those are a place uh, that you can hear the translation uh, really distinctly because she includes names for God, which is an ancient practice in the Psalms uh, to offer names that give some uh, characteristics of God. And she does a beautiful job of offering expansive names. Um, I have for us, I printed off some of the names that she offers. In the back of the lectionary books, um, there's an appendix that includes 120 something names for God that she uses in her work. So I've printed some off for us uh, that we might each take one home to sort of meditate on. Uh, So I'll pass those around, Uh, take one home, and see what it might spark for you. I really enjoyed uh, spending some time with that list of names and it's something that I hope to refer to often um, in my preaching, in writing liturgy, um, and also just in my own study of scripture. They're really beautiful names for God. And she uses those a lot in the Psalms as I named. She also pays careful attention to language of slavery and Lord um, in her translation. She does not soften the language of slavery um, as is often done in biblical translation. She that, acknowledges that slavery uh, was part of the culture in which uh, Jesus lived, part of the culture in which the Hebrew scriptures were written as well. And while it looks different than chattel slavery as we um, know it in this country, it still was harmful. Slavery, owning of other people, or presuming that you might own other people, obviously is harmful. So she does not want to soften that, even if it does look different than what we might understand. She also is intentional with language of light and dark. in our culture, light has come to mean white and good, and dark has come to mean black and bad. That's a problem. Um, and she addresses that really carefully. Um, because that is part of our linguistic pattern, especially in the United States, uh, that's something she wants to do a lot of decoupling of that ling- those pieces of language. Um, so Generally, when black or dark is referring to something bad in the scriptures, she instead uses the word bleakness, which is still a a valid translation, um, but helps us to get away from some of those um, racial linguistic patterns that we have built in this country. However, when darkness refers to something holy, she preserves it. So she reminds us that the holy does indeed dwell in darkness, which is an important reminder. Questions about that so far?
1: I was curious
0: about the 127 names, so they are different in the languages that she's translating from? So in reading the Psalms over the centuries, Psalms were used as songs um, for much of our history, um, and especially among Jewish people. So often the names for God, um, because the name of God is unnameable um, in Jewish tradition, instead folks would use names that offered characterizations of God. So that offered a way to name God um, and to pay reverence to God uh, that could change over time, could um, speak to the way in which a psalmist or someone reflecting on the psalms experienced God. So that's an ancient practice of offering names based on characterization. So that's a place that it's not coming directly from her translation of the text, but she's taking some liberty uh, with that and using places where another characterization might be given or an opportunity for a characterization exists. And she's using some of her own uh, biblical scholarship to offer different names that might not have been um, circulated widely prior to that. It's available in her work. Um, if you send me an email, I'll, I'll send you the list.
3: Uh, I've noticed in one place, and probably there are more, where she's actually substituted Bathsheba's name for David, which mm-hmm. is really altering the text. Um, how do you feel about actually changing a word or changing a name in the text, which gives people the wrong idea of what actually the text is, uh, to conform to what she would like it to say, mm-hmm. what she thinks it should say?
0: It's a good question, and I'm not a biblical scholar in the way that that she is. Um, So I'm not sure that I can fully comment on it. Some of her translation or altering of the text is intended to help us look at it differently um, and to acknowledge the role of women in stories. So I trust that she is doing that work faithfully um, and it might lead us to different conclusions and that might actually be really healthy for us. I don't think that she is changing anything um, without real serious regard for the text. Uh, I think it is also, that speaks to the importance of always reading a few translations of something. I think it's good for us to explore different translations uh, and see how they might speak to us and offer us different information. Uh, So I don't think I can offer a full commentary on that question, I think it's a really good question, Um, but without digging really deeply into the places that she has made those alterations. um, I don't wanna say something that is not what I fully think, but it's a good question. I think something for us to dig into and explore, so thank you. What else? So here are the four um, books of the lectionary. Year C has not come out just yet. Um, Year W, as I named, was the first in the series. Um, Year A and B have come out, um, and she's rolling these out so that they are available in time for that year to come up in the lectionary. Uh, So year B came out, I think, last summer, and year C will come out this summer so that it's available in time for this coming Advent, which is when we begin the next um, liturgical year and start over in the lectionary. Uh, So this year, when we are using uh, texts from the women's lectionary, we're using the year B texts, um, which mirrors what we would have used otherwise. Uh, This is something that she names in the introduction of the books that I find really powerful. It is my hope that liturgy, the work of the people in service of God, will be a place where all people can experience themselves as fully created in the image of God, whose words they hear through the scriptures and in praying and preaching. So liturgy is the work of the people. It is something that we do as a community, something that involves all of us. And it's something that we do, of course, in service and praise of God, uh, in service of the body of Christ and therefore should be a place where all of us can experience um, the fullness of who we are, the fullness of who we were created as, um, created in the image of God, um, while in our beautiful particularity. That's something we should experience in worship, in scripture, in prayer, and in preaching. Um, That's something that I think our clergy pay close attention to in um, our preaching and teaching. Uh, It's something that I know you are paying attention to and naming to us in your own study and prayer. Uh, So that's really the the key hope of this work that she's doing is that people can experience themselves in worship. Uh, So I hope that our engagement with this might help us to experience ourselves and our neighbor more clearly in worship um, and to notice things, to hear things that uh, strike our ear differently, hear things um, that might, even without us rationally knowing it, speak to us in a different way. Um, So that's her goal, and that's, I think, our goal in engaging this project. So I'll I'll talk a bit about the why and how um, of St. Columba's engaging uh, Dr. Gaffney's work. First, some of the words that have come up to me as I've been uh, praying over this and preparing for worship are that it's an experiment. It's something that we are trying. Uh, That's part of how uh, she offers this resource is that it's it's something for people to try and to notice and to learn and engage differently in the way that using a new translation in our own study is always kind of an experiment of figuring out what connects with us. It's a way to explore. It's a way for us to explore parts of scripture that we have not heard before, either because they are ignored or purposefully pushed down. There are some stories of women in the Bible uh, that we don't hear because it might tell us women that we have power and a full relationship with God and can preach and teach, uh, which for much of history has been uh, quite a shock, right? Um, So it allows us to explore some of those stories, uh, to delve into the women of Scripture that we might already know, uh, but to hear their stories more deeply and to hear them in worship. It helps us to expand, I like to talk about expansive language rather than inclusive language, and I'll explain the difference between those. Inclusive language is often when we completely strip the gender of God from our conversation, which can be helpful. It can be helpful to talk about God without specifically naming a gender for God um, because that allows everyone to be included. Expansive language, on the other hand, allows us to speak of the many identities of God. So it allows us to acknowledge that for many people, Father and Lord are really helpful ways to refer to God. But it also allows us to experience the mothering language of God, to experience some of these new names for God that help us to each connect in our particularity. So inclusive language allows everyone to be included because it is broad. Expansive language in gla- allows all of us to be engaged because we can see ourselves in God. We can see our particularity in God. Um, so I like to lean into the expansive um, way of being an expansive language. Um, and I hope that's what this project can help us do as well. I hope that it can help us to embrace one another to embrace the pieces of our spirituality that might have been forgotten to embrace stories that we might not have heard um, and to help us to embrace this community um, to embrace our neighbors to embrace the diversity of the body of Christ. As Episcopalians, we often say that praying shapes believing, and I think to engage uh, Dr. Gaffney's work is to take that seriously and to say that if we think our praying shapes our believing, then we acknowledge that our words matter. We acknowledge that what we do together matters, and it informs the way that we experience God. So we're trying something different uh, to see how that might inform our believing and inform our relationship with God. At St. Columbus, we'll engage this uh, in our readings, of course, that's the the bulk of the project is around the readings and lectionary. And of course, our sermons will then reflect on those readings and hopefully um, offer some insight uh, to them. We'll engage... Uh, this project in our liturgy and in our prayers. The liturgy has been written um, or compiled to really lean into some of this language that Dr. Gaffney uses, to lean into the mothering language of God. As an example, the prayers of the people, um, I had the the privilege and opportunity to write those and use that list of names for God to inspire the writing of it. So I sat with that list and prayed with it and and noticed which ones were really speaking to me and helped us to look at the expansive nature of God. So each petition of the prayers of the people uses a different name for God and emphasizes a different characteristic of God. So you'll hear that, um, our Eucharistic prayer, I selected because it allows us to see the different genders of God. So I hope you'll pay attention to those details. We'll also engage this project in our forums as we are today. We'll also uh, next week hear from Reverend Glenna Huber, who is the rector at Epiphany Episcopal Church. Uh, So she'll offer our sermon at the 9 o'clock and 1115 services, as well as our forum. So we'll have the opportunity to hear from her. Mitchell will offer a forum that focuses on poetry as a, a starting point, a jumping off point. Uh, So you'll hear more about this as we go along. And I hope that you'll also end up having conversations informally with one another. Uh, Maybe something in worship stands out to you and you end up talking about it while you have your coffee or donuts. Um, I know Mitchell's sermon this morning um, had all of us abuzz in the common after worship, um, talking about what it was that we heard and experienced in that. If you haven't heard it yet, you're in for a treat. Uh, So I hope this this informs or this uh, comes up in informal conversation as well. And I welcome conversation about any of what you're learning or engaging or what challenges you um, as we do this. I think it's good for us to talk about um, and to expand our relationships through engaging this. That's what I have. I'm curious if there are questions, things coming up for you um, as we begin this season of Engaging Year W.
2: Great presentations. Let's Thank start you. with that. Um, we have, as everybody knows here, I think we this is our second year trying Year W. Mm-hmm. Um, the first, um, I come from a family of all females, by the way, so um, it, it spec speaks to me. I'm tired of saying he or she every time I refer to God, so I'm not, you know, it just uh, having other names in other ways to reflect God, and to have the knowledge that it's not God, it's God the Father, it's God the Mother, all the things uh, is, makes E or W a really good thing, and those things all make a really good thing. <laughs> Um, there's one caveat. Um, last year, we had one sermon uh, where the guest speaker delivered delivered a uh, what could only be called a feminist rant against the males of this uh, of this country. Basically, they were beating their women. Um, it was a modern day. Uh, Uh, Margaret Ackwood novel, uh, Handmaid's Tale, women were were physically beaten. And in in all seriousness, she did this, and uh, somewhat more appallingly, I learned afterwards that when the staff uh, discussed the sermon, they were all okay with it, um, except for one, there was one dissent among the staff. Um, and I guess I'd ask if you know already, I don't know how far down the line is, that if there's any, if there'll be any effort to avoid pol- socio-political, ideological rants from the pulpit this year.
0: I appreciate your question. And I think it's important that we are careful about the words that we use to describe the preaching of black women. I was not here to hear that sermon. Um, I was not here to ha- take part in conversations that happened afterwards. And I experienced um, Reverend Gail Fisher as a, Fisher Stewart as a faithful preacher, which doesn't always mean easy to hear. Um, so I can't exactly comment on what you're, you're asking. Um, I don't know what sermons are ahead, um, but I do, I hope that we'll engage with those things that challenge us and are different from what we normally hear. Um, and I don't hear you saying that you won't, um, but I, I want us to be careful about the way that we remember a sermon that happened a year ago and the way that we characterize it. Um, and engage openly um, as we can. I, but I don't, I don't know what sermons are ahead of us. Thank you, though. I appreciate the question.
1: Hello. 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 Um, so I was there at that sermon with my 10-year-old daughter, mm-hmm. and they warned us beforehand, you know, OK, there could be something. But uh, I wanted her to hear things. Mm-hmm. and. I thought it was great. <laughs> and I did have to have a conversation with her after words because sure. she said, Mommy, that was inappropriate what she said. and What about this? But it, it engaged dialogue with us, and mm-hmm. I thought, well, she should learn about these things here first, right? Because it's sure. everywhere out there. And then also about that, I, I really appreciate the, the, um, the female language of God and all that, because I personally left the Episcopal Church as a teenager for many decades, because I just found the the masculine words did just I didn't connect with it mm-hmm. at all. Like that's not my experience of what God is or reality or you know. So it's like sure. all right, well, and I don't know if this is the correct way to do it. You know, I, I like the expansionist thing, and you know that I understand that. Um, but anyway, that's my experience. You know, another part of it is. Um, there's a style of delivery of Mm -hmm. sermon that can be really forceful and kind of I don't know for me a little bit shocking and then there's you could say the same words in a more gentle way and that kind of speaks to me more and that's just a personality thing or perhaps a a cultural thing the way people grow up the way priests grow up Um, but I don't know, I kind of prefer the more gentle way. I mean, these are comments, I don't have Mm -hmm. questions, but there are questions embedded in the comments, like, how do we have it all work, right, you know? Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think it's great that we're doing this because these are really relevant questions, so Mm -hmm.
0: thank you. Yeah, I think a a diversity of voices is helpful. Um, We have a diverse preaching staff here and um, supplement that with uh, folks that we get to invite. And there will be, there'll be things that we connect with more. There'll be ways of um, delivering that we connect with more. And I think it's good for us to, to hear it all and, and see what it offers us. Um, I do think a lot of that is, is cultural. Um, yeah, but it, it's good to, to learn and, and grow in that way. I wanted
1: to say how happy my mother would be. Oh, wonderful. I love that. And, and so many women who are. Of that generation that is no longer Margaret Gunther,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and my mom, yes, and my sister now, and uh, and others, you know, who were never comfortable in church with just the one gender or just the fact that women were not acknowledged, their power was mm-hmm. not acknowledged and celebrated and used. So this is a great day. Mm-hmm. It's a great day. Thank you so much. Thank
0: you. Yeah. Your comment helps me think about women mystics of the church who have been talking about God as a woman and as a mother for years and years and years. Um, Julian of Norwich comes to mind um, as, as one in particular. But there have been women for many generations that have engaged this work. Um, but I, I think hearing you say that your mother would have been so happy to experience this. Like, that, that says it all to me, um, that I hope we're offering something that can give generational healing, even. Thank you. We might have time for one more, um, if there's lingering questions.
3: I want to say a word for the provocative,
1: mm-hmm.
3: whether it's in preaching or liturgy or whatever because just from my own personal experience, and it doesn't have to just be in church, it could be something I hear on the news or whatever, but when I hear something new, and maybe it's shocking, maybe in a good way, maybe it at first is off-putting, and I'm sort of all churned up, I'm trying to learn to not just react out of that initial reaction, Mm
0: -hmm.
3: hold it, but what what I also realize is those kinds of things provoke me to think more. Mm-hmm. and get clear on why it is I did or didn't respond positively to something. And I think it's important in liturgy for it to be provocative sometimes rather than just washing over it, so.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I think provocative is a good word yeah. for it. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank y'all. Um, I hope we'll continue to be in conversation as we go along in this experiment in this season using your W. Um, I welcome your feedback, your questions, uh, your comments as we go. Thank you.